In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today we got the consumer credit numbers for the month of July, and the increase was $16.6 billion, which was more than was expected. And I think the general reaction to consumer credit numbers is whenever consumers borrow more money than people think they're going to borrow, this is a good thing. Right, because oh, it shows that the consumers have confidence and they're willing to go deeper into debt because they feel good about the economy, they feel good about their jobs. Yet I've said this over and over again, what would really be evidence of a strong economy would be consumer credit going down. It would be consumers buying stuff without having to borrow to pay for it. Right? If you have a growing economy where your consumers are earning more money, they wouldn't rely on debt to finance their consumption. They can consume stuff out of their income. Or in a really good economy, consumers are saving. Savings are growing, and then eventually consumers can start spending their savings on some of their consumer goods without having to borrow money in order to buy stuff. Because when you save in order to buy up the things that you want, you earn interest on your savings, albeit now you don't earn a lot of interest. But normally, you know, before the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, jacked interest rates so low, while you're saving up for things that you want to buy but that you can't afford, you get to earn interest, which makes it easier for you to buy something because you get to spend the interest that you've earned. So if something's going to cost a thousand dollars. 
you might not have to save $1,000 to buy it. Maybe you only have to save 950 that you earn another $50 in interest while you're saving up the money. But on the other hand, if you want to buy something on credit that costs um, $1,000, it may end up costing you $1,200 because you had to pay the $1,000 for the product plus the extra $200 for the interest that you had to pay whoever loaned you the money to buy the product. So buying a product on credit means you pay $1,200 for it, but buying it with savings means the same product costs you $950. So things are a lot cheaper if you buy them from savings and save up and then buy than if you borrow now and then pay over time. And of course, with credit card interest rates, uh, if you pay the minimum, things could end up costing you double or triple uh, what it would cost you if you simply saved the money first and then spent it. But of course, that's not the so-called American way now. It's buy first and ask questions later. You know, It reminds me of that uh, Saturday Night Live uh, skit a long, long time ago where this guy comes out and says that you know he's got a new plan for Americans and it's that and it's that if you can't afford something then you don't buy it right and then people are like really confused like how do I implement this like how do I not buy something that I can't afford it's just that if I don't have the money then I don't buy it and you know it's hard for them to grasp that concept of only buying things that you can afford but in any event this number right being higher than expected is not good news if you understand real economics, of course, if you're simply concerned about the air, uh, you know, not coming out of the bubble, right? If you simply want consumers to keep on spending, then you want uh, consumer credit to keep growing because it means consumers still have the ability to take on more debt or creditors are still dumb enough to supply the credit to overly indebted consumers. So it keeps the whole house of cards from collapsing. So from that perspective, uh, from delaying the day of reckoning, yes, I suppose you could say it's good news that consumers have access to more credit, right? They, they have more rope with which they will ultimately be hanging themselves from, but it is not a good thing. Meanwhile, if you look at the growth of auto loans and student loans, they surged. They're at new all-time record highs. Credit card debt was only up a little bit, but the total now uh, combined between auto loans, student loans, and credit card debt is $3.91 trillion. I mean, I remember it was not that long ago when that number hit $3 trillion, and that was a big deal. We're almost at $4 trillion in consumer credit. All of this, of course, is destructive to an economy. You don't want consumers borrowing money to buy stuff. Because remember, savings are scarce. Savings represent resources that are not consumed. And that's what fuels capital investment. Well, if we waste or squander part of our savings financing consumption, well, that savings cannot be used to finance production. And it's investment debt that grows the economy. Right? You don't want to go out and borrow money to buy a car. Right? You want to borrow money to build an automobile factory. You want to borrow money to buy new plant and equipment for an existing factory. You want to borrow money to buy better tools right, for your auto workers or to provide training to those workers so that you can be more productive. You don't want to borrow to buy the car, the consumer good. You want to borrow to finance 
the capital goods that are required to produce the consumer good, which of course is what we want, right? Nobody wants the capital goods, the instrumental goods is what they're called in economics. What we want is all the consumer goods that capital goods can produce, but we're not going to get the consumer goods without the capital goods, and we're not going to get the capital goods without the savings necessary to finance the investment. So when you buy a car, you should buy the cars that you can afford, right? So if you only have $3,000 saved up, you don't use it as a down payment on a $40,000 car. You know, you just buy a used car for $3,000. Now, obviously, you can't get much of a car for $3,000, but if that's all you got, then that's what you can afford. Now, what you might want to do is just keep driving the car that you already have until you've saved up enough additional money uh, to buy a nicer car, but don't go into debt uh, to buy a car. I mean, there are some people that say, well, you know, you need a car to get to work. That may be true, but you don't need a brand new $40,000 car to get to work. You can get to work just as well in a less expensive used car. And, you know, if you look at the difference in the Chinese market, right, 90% of American car buyers use an auto loan, right? Only 10% pay cash, right? Which means only 10% of Americans buying cars can actually afford the cars they're buying because there's no reason not to pay cash for a car. I mean, why borrow? I mean, unless you're leasing it and you're deducting it as a business expense, economically, you, you, know, you should buy a car. You shouldn't uh, finance it. You shouldn't take out a loan. But in China, it's the reverse. In China, 90% of the people buying cars pay cash, right? So which economy has, you know, wealthier citizens, the one that can buy their cars from their savings or the one that has to go into debt to buy a car. Sure, the Chinese are not buying nearly as expensive cars as the Americans, but that's because the Americans are a bunch of idiots, right? We're going into debt to buy depreciating assets, right? Cars lose value. The minute you drive your new car off the lot, it's lost probably 20% of its value. I think cars lose about half their value every four years as you drive them around. So why would you borrow money to buy an asset that depreciates that quickly? You wouldn't. You just, you know, you're going to buy what you can afford. And that is what they're doing in China, but they're not doing that in the United States. And so we're borrowing for everything. We're borrowing to do all sorts of things that either we shouldn't do it all, or we shouldn't buy it all, or, you know, we should save up our money first and then buy it. But, you know, I have a feeling that a lot of the money that's being borrowed, for example, on student loans, a lot of that money isn't being used to finance tuition. A lot of that is being used for just ordinary living expenses. Maybe there's a lot of people that are still living with their parents uh, that are borrowing money to go to college, but they're not using all the money for tuition. You know, I've even read that there are people that are using their student loans to buy Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. All right, so, but all this debt is fueling excess consumption that should not be taking place. We would be much better off if American consumers refrained from buying stuff until they can afford it and then in the interim, they save their money and then businesses could take the savings and invest it you know, profitably in non-depreciating assets. You see, when a business borrows to finance capital investment, there's a return on the investment, right? You, you get extra profits as a result of making the investment and that cash flow is what enables you to repay the debt, right? To pay the interest and to pay off the principal. But when you borrow to consume, you've got no income producing asset 
to pay off the debt. All you can do is refrain from future consumption to pay for your past consumption. So all the money that Americans are borrowing to consume now is going to come at the expense of the consumption they can't afford in the future because they have to pay back for all the consumption they financed in the past. But countries, you know, where China, where you have people buying out of savings and saving a lot of money and deferring their consumption into the future, well, their future is going to be a lot brighter because they're going to be able to consume what they saved and they're going to be able to consume the interest on what they saved. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit more about savings and, the, and why it's important and what it means at the end of this uh, podcast when I talk a little bit more about Bitcoin and the video that I posted about Bitcoin last week. So I'm going to get to that at the end, but let me just stay on this topic. Although actually, I want to move forward for now from uh, credit uh, to the tax cuts, because obviously the consumers are stretched, right? They're borrowing all this money. Uh, interest rates are going up. In fact, the yield on the 10-year today was up, uh, I think, uh, 40 basis points or to 2.98%. So we're almost at 3% right now in the 10-year. Um, the, the chart, though, to me, looks like we can explode higher, up to 3.5%, 4% almost any time on the yields. Oil price is up nearly two bucks again today, 69.40. So oil getting more expensive. Again, this chart to me looks very, very strong. I still think we have a shot of $80 crude before the end of the year and then north of 100 next year, especially when the dollar rolls over. I mean, if you think about how strong oil prices are today, with the dollar strong, imagine how much stronger oil prices will be tomorrow when the dollar is weak. But all of this, of course, is making things more expensive for consumers. Uh, that's why the auto industry is suffering. You know, I mentioned just a minute ago about how many Americans have to borrow to buy cars. That's one of the reasons that both General Motors and Ford, again, hit new 52-week uh, lows on the day. Again, Ford, again, that's close to an eight- or nine-year low or something like that. But General Motors, again, a new low. Uh, both of these stocks uh, venturing further into bear market territory why are these companies in so much trouble? Well, because uh, their customers in America are broke. Uh, they've already borrowed too much money to buy cars in the past, uh, and now it's even more expensive to buy cars in the future. Remember, General Motors got bailed out. They were bankrupt, and they got bailed out by the government uh, in 2009. I think that they're likely to fail again. I think in the next economic downturn, we could see another bankruptcy. Ford did not go bankrupt. Remember, that was the only uh, company that was able to survive without an official bailout. Of course, probably they would have uh, probably collapsed had we not had all the quantitative easing and uh, 0% interest rates and all that. Uh, but Chrysler got a bailout and then it ended up getting uh, bought out uh, by Fiat. So it's not even really an American company anymore. But I think we have a good chance of seeing these companies going bankrupt again. Uh, now, hopefully the next time the government won't bail them out, but I have a feeling they will. Of course, eventually it's the government itself that's going to be in need of a bailout. And of course, the U.S. government is too big to bail, right? Talk about being too big to fail. It's too big to bail. Of course, they don't technically need a bailout, right? They just print money. But of course, that's the problem. They're going to print money that nobody wants and the currency is going to uh, collapse. But let me just get back to the, the tax cuts. So because of 
to the extent that everybody is stretched, right? Even though they have jobs, people are living paycheck to paycheck and those paychecks are uh, you know, not buying as much and prices are rising. So now the Republicans are talking about another round of tax cuts, right? Just in time for the November election. Now, whether or not these tax cuts actually get passed, you know, is anyone's guess, but it's going to be an issue on the campaign trail, either because they delivered, the Republicans delivered another tax cut, or because the only thing standing in the way of more tax cuts is the Democrat. And so that's going to be their campaign. But remember, the uh, tax cuts that were passed the last time, the ones that apply to individuals, they are quote unquote temporary. They all sunset, they phase out. Uh, over the course of a 10-year period, although I think some of the cuts start to phase out after you know five or six years, but after 10 years, all of the uh, the breaks phase out, and of course, then everybody is going to be left paying higher taxes. Now, the corporate rates don't phase out, so the reduction in the corporate income tax rate is quote unquote permanent, and the reductions for individuals are just temporary. Now, of course, as I mentioned before, there's no such thing as a permanent tax cut. All tax cuts are temporary because any Congress can raise taxes any times it wants. Uh, so it's more just semantics. But the reason they had to make the personal tax cuts temporary was so that they can pretend that the increase in the budget deficits was not going to be as high as everybody knew that it was, because the idea was, well, even though these are temporary tax cuts, everybody is going to vote to extend them. Well, here we are. It isn't even a year has gone by, and the Republicans already want to come back and make them permanent, which shows that making them temporary in the first place was all a lie. It was a fraud on the public to try to pretend that the tax cuts were not going to produce as large an increase in the deficit as they would. In fact, we got uh, the numbers that came out today for the August uh, budget deficit, $211 billion. It nearly doubled the deficit that we had in the same month last year. So this is one of the biggest monthly deficits ever. In fact, in the first 11 months of the year, the deficit is $895 billion. So probably it could hit a trillion dollars. You know, we have another month to hit a trillion dollars, so it probably will. And this is a trillion dollar deficit during a supposedly booming economy. I mean, if we can't generate surpluses in a booming economy, according to Trump, this is the Biggest boom we've ever had in our history, yet we're still having a trillion-dollar budget deficit? Imagine the enormity of the deficits when the economy is not booming. Oh, my God, imagine how bad they're going to be when the economy is actually in a recession, right, let alone not, not booming. And, you know, in, in the, this most recent year, right, the deficit is $222 billion higher than the previous year. Government spending up 7%, yet revenues only rose 1%. So even with the tax cuts, revenue did go up, right? So there's your dynamic. See, the Republicans said if we cut taxes, we can grow revenue. And yes, they did. They grew revenue by 1%, but spending grew by 7%. So it is not closing the gap, not by a long shot. And again, by the way, you know those are only the on-budget items because the national debt grew by more than $895 billion. Because what happens is a lot of spending that the government does 
doesn't get counted as an official outlay, so it's not part of the deficit. One of these uh, categories are the payments for natural disasters, which, you know, obviously the government is going to be spending a lot of money. Hurricane Florence, uh, Category 4, make it a beeline for the Carolinas, is going to hit on Thursday or Friday as a 4, maybe even a Category 5. The storm is huge. It's almost as big as the state of North Carolina. And after it hits the coast, it's going to move inland uh, as a tropical storm. And, of course, there's going to be potential for flooding. So the damages could be in the tens of billions of dollars. I mean, maybe upwards of $100 billion uh, from this storm. And, of course, the government is already getting ready for emergency aid and bailout money. None of this money is going to be counted as part of the official deficit for the fiscal year, just like none of last year's uh, hurricane emergency aid money uh, was part of the budget. Now, the reason that the government doesn't include it is they say, well, this is a one-off event. It's an emergency. So let's not you know, count it because it's an outlier. It's, you know, it's not really an expenditure because you know, it's just an emergency. And so we don't want to put it into the budget as if it's a recurring item because that'll kind of screw up the accounting. So let's keep it off budget so we have a more accurate view of what the government is spending, except all that is nonsense. Hurricane season happens every single year. Every year, the government has to spend money, or doesn't have to, but it chooses to spend money for emergency federal aid. And whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a fire, uh, whether it's an earthquake or an avalanche, or who knows, whatever the natural disaster is, you can pretty much guarantee that there's going to be some type of disaster every single year. Now, if that's the case, you just can't claim it's a one-off event and not count it. The government should have to put this in the budget every single year and admit that it's borrowing this money because it's actually borrowing the money. You know, once you've committed to fund all these national disasters, then the cost of funding it should be accounted for. It should be budgeted. You know, any corporation that tried to do this kind of accounting and try to claim that these one-off events were not recurring, I mean, the government might investigate them for accounting fraud. So it's a fraud to pretend that these expenditures aren't happening. But they are happening, and the money to pay for it has to be borrowed, right? When the government is going to send money uh, to a state to deal with a natural disaster, when the government is already running a deficit, where does the government get the extra money? It has to borrow that, right? It has to go deeper into debt. So it's not sharing the wealth, it's sharing the debt. It's just replacing state credit with federal credit. Because of course, the state governments can go out and borrow money, but instead they don't. They just get it from the federal government. The federal government goes out and borrows money. Well, the problem is, Eventually, nobody's going to lend them the money, right? We've got nothing saved for a rainy day, and every time it pours rain, we have to go and borrow money. Of course, when nobody will lend us money, then all we can do is print money, but then, of course, then that's it, right? Then the money we print won't buy anything, and it's not going to matter that we can print all this money because we can't print purchasing power. We can only uh, print money that is so long as the world wants to accept it in exchange for real goods and services. And the days that they are willing to do that, I think, are going to come to an end. But my point was that the cost of whatever money the government ends up spending for uh, hurricane disaster relief is not going to be included, but we're still going to be uh, probably breaking a trillion dollars 
during a year where the economy is is growing and therefore revenues are growing to the U.S. government. Imagine when revenues start to contract, how much bigger these deficits are ultimately going to be. But again, this is just another fraud. The tax cuts are another fraud, just like round one, because if the government is getting bigger, if government expenditures are rising by 7% year over year, government is 7% bigger, government is 7% more expensive. We've got to pay for that one way or another. So if you want to reduce income taxes, okay, where's the money going to come from? The, the government doesn't get the money from the man on the moon. The government has to get the money it spends somehow. It's not getting it for free. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So if we're not paying for it with income taxes, we're paying for it some way. And that's what's happening. So the, the Republicans want to promise more tax cuts so they can go brag to their constituents that, you know, they cut taxes. Well, that's just like Democrats wanting to brag to their constituents that they increased spending on welfare or increased spending on food stamps or whatever. It's more something for nothing. See, what none of the Republicans want to do is cut government. None of the Republicans want to make government smaller so that they can say, hey, the reward for smaller government is lower taxes. They want to let everybody have their cake and eat it too. They want to say you can have all this government and we can cut your taxes at the same time. You can't do that. That does not work. But the Republicans don't have the guts to actually talk about reducing spending. And of course, if they pretend that we can have all these tax cuts without cutting government spending, then why do it? Right? It's like if you if you tell your kids they can have their dessert without eating dinner, then why should they eat dinner? Just skip right to the dessert. Well, that's what the Republicans are telling voters. You don't need to eat your green beans. Just have this cake and ice cream. Vote for me. You know, part of the problem, too, with all this, you know, stimulus, government stimulus, Keynesian stimulus. I read this article today about how Trump is now validating everything that the Democrats have been saying. Right. So because Trump is out there talking about how great the economy is, we have this economic boom and you have some Democrats that are saying, yeah, the president is right. The economy is doing well because we finally got the fiscal stimulus that the Democrats have always wanted. But the Republicans stubbornly refused to provide. Right. Obama wanted fiscal stimulus, but you had these idiot Republicans and they were you know, taking their marching orders uh, from the Tea Party. Right. And these Tea Party wackos were complaining about the deficit. And so we couldn't give the economy the stimulus it needed because of the Tea Party, because of this preoccupation with deficits and deficits matter and we can't run up the deficit. But now what the Democrats are saying is Trump is proving that the Democrats were right and the Republicans were wrong because now we have this gigantic fiscal stimulus where we have all this extra government spending, right, with tax cuts, a Keynesian fiscal stimulus, and now we're getting uh, the economy doing better, that, you know, it was growing under Obama and Obama would have had even more success but for Republicans' refusal to allow the stimulus. But now that the Republicans have allowed Trump to deliver the same type of stimulus that Obama would have delivered, now we're finally starting to see the economy growing even faster. And of course, the Democrats could say a Democratic stimulus would have been more geared toward the middle class and the poor instead of the corporations and the rich. But hey, you know, we'll take whatever stimulus we can get. 
But basically what this does is it lays a foundation for the next round of fiscal stimulus, Keynesian stimulus, to be uh, more geared towards uh, the, the middle class and the poor. And that's going to be part of the Democrats' uh, campaigning, not only in 2018, but in 2020. But of course, the problem is the Republicans are, are going to be poorly positioned to oppose the larger deficits that are going to be proposed by the Democrats because they'll be hypocrites. You can't basically say deficits are fine when Republicans vote for them, but they're not fine when Democrats. So how will Republicans oppose the deficits that future Democratic administrations want to run up in order to, quote unquote, stimulate the economy? They won't be able to say, well, we can't afford this because we don't want to run up the deficit because that wasn't a problem before. When Trump wanted to run up the deficit, everybody signed on. All the Republicans were all for it. So this is part of the problem. This is part of the trap that the Republicans have fallen into. In fact, they set the trap for the Democrats and fell into it all on their own. They just basically teed it up and they just they just uh, lost this issue because now the, the Democrats can claim that stimulus works. We just need to more target it at the people who need it rather than at the rich people who don't. Now, also along this lines, I was reading these articles. I didn't actually see uh, the interview. I might try to look at it at some point. But Jim Carrey, uh, comedian Jim Carrey, uh, was on the Bill Maher show uh, talking about the Democrats and socialism. And basically his opinion was socialism is great. So why don't the Democrats just embrace it? Just say yes to socialism already and stop trying to pretend they're not socialists. Don't hide from it. Just, you know, just embrace it, which, of course, many Democrats, as I said, were socialists, you know, in the closet. They didn't want to come out and admit it. Because, you know, the country wasn't ready for it. But now they can come out and openly declare uh, that they're socialists because it's acceptable now. Everybody, everybody likes it. Everybody thinks socialism is great. You know, when you say yes to socialism, you're saying no to some very important things like individual liberty, freedom, prosperity. But voters don't know that. They just think socialism is a bunch of free stuff and they get more free stuff under socialism than under capitalism. And so people, people want stuff. I mean, Jim Carrey talked about how, you know, in Canada, it's, it's, you know, the government can take care of you, right? And he talked about how great their healthcare system is, which it's not, but he likes the idea that governments can take care of you. That's not the kind of country I want to live in where everybody looks to the government to take care of them. I want people to take care of themselves. That's the, that's the point of, of, of a free people, the government isn't there to, to take care of us cradle to grave. The government is there to protect our rights. We take care of ourselves. That's what it means to be an American, right? And a, a rugged individual, Americans take care of themselves. Now, does that mean that if somebody is incapable of taking care of themselves, that we just let them starve to death? No, that's what private charity is all about, right? I don't want some bureaucrats deciding who to take care of and how to take care of. I want free people using all the things that you have. And so you don't want to sacrifice your liberty and your freedom just because you think the government's going to take care of you. They're not going to take care of you. I mean, they're going to take care of you, but in, in a bad way. They're not going to do it in a good way. But Jim Carrey, you know, he got very rich in a capitalist system, at least what's left of it. I mean, if, if you think this guy would be able to make a fortune uh, as a comedian telling jokes in a socialist society, right? I mean, if we were really running a society based on socialist type principles, right? Marxist principles from each according to his ability to each according to his need. I mean, 
how much would Jim Carrey need? I mean, what what is what is the ability to make people laugh actually worth in a socialist economy, in a con- command economy? I mean, the reason that he's able to make so much money telling jokes is because so many people laugh at those jokes. That's why he's able to get rich, because movies can sell a lot of tickets because Jim Carrey is funny, and a lot of people are willing to pay, you know, eight bucks, ten bucks, to, to laugh at Jim Carrey in a movie. I mean, that's capitalism. He is a primary beneficiary of the capitalist system. I want to finish up this video by talking about the short video, the three-minute video I uploaded on Friday on my YouTube channel about Bitcoin. And it's titled, Buying Bitcoin is Like Buying Air. And the reason I wanted to mention it again is first I wanted to spend a little bit more time explaining uh, you know some of the intricacies of this short three-minute video and why I think it's so appropriate to describe the Bitcoin experience, both past, uh, present, and future. But also, I wanted to call attention to it again because I was disappointed by the number of uh, views that the video received. Right now, it's a little bit shy of 20,000 views, 19,500 and change as I am recording this podcast. And I would have thought a lot more people would have watched it. You know, about 40,000 people watched my last podcast or listened to it rather on my YouTube channel. And I encouraged everybody on that podcast to watch this video. And so, uh, you know, obviously not everybody did, especially when you consider that a lot of people listen to my podcast, not on my YouTube channel, but on Shift Radio or on iTunes or whoever they listen to their podcast. So if I got 40,000 YouTube views, Probably at least 100,000 people have listened to the podcast over the past few days, yet not quite 20,000 of them uh, checked out this video. But the people who did look at it, I think uh, we got some great feedback. With only 19,500 views, about 10% of the people who watched it rated the video. And I got about 10 times the number of thumbs ups as thumbs down. But 10% rating, that's a lot. I normally don't get nearly that many people uh, rating one of my videos. Also, the comments. We've got almost 700 comments, 690 some odd comments on a video with just 19,500 so views. Again, that's a lot of comments. So even though uh, not that many people have watched the video, a lot of the people who did watch it took time out to comment, uh, to rate it, and that's the whole purpose, is I want this video to get people thinking. I want it to spur some more conversation about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and you know whether or not there's actually any fundamental value there uh, or not. And you know, a lot of times when I would think about the concept of Bitcoin, it made me think about this old skit, this Sesame Street skit that I probably hadn't thought about in 45 years or more. Uh, The last time I saw it is when I was a little kid and I saw it live. But I remembered it and I, you know, searched for it on the internet and sure enough, there it was. I mean, and so I took the original video, I cut it out a little bit. It's actually longer than three minutes, but I took out some of the stuff that uh, was harder to uh, see how it related to Bitcoin. But the original skit was this character Lefty, who is the, the neighborhood con man, trying to get Ernie to buy some air, which he's selling in a bottle. He's got a bottle of air, and uh, he's trying to get Ernie to buy his air for a nickel. And from start to finish, this is perfect Bitcoin. And all I did 
was substitute the word Bitcoin for the word air. And by the way, I'm the voice of lefty, you know, when it's Bitcoin. I had somebody else uh, do the Ernie part and I, I was uh, I was lefty. But one of the reasons it's so similar is the fact that you've got this guy, lefty, who is so intent on convincing Ernie to buy Bitcoin, which is kind of what's happening, right? Because now, whenever you're in cryptocurrencies, you always got to try to spread the word. You got to get out there and recruit new entrants into the ecosystem, right? You need new buyers to come in to keep the whole thing going. In fact, that's one of the reasons that there's so much uh, attention now on the institutions coming in, on uh, the hedge funds, and will they be able to buy, and can they come up with custodians, and, and will they have and an ETF, right? Because everybody is looking for institutions to buy. Now, of course, that shows you that the natural buying is drying up, right? The whole idea that Bitcoin is going to be an alternative in the world of currencies, right? We're running out of people who want to buy it. The idea now is that, well, it's going to be a new asset class, right? That institutions are going to buy it uh, as an asset. It's a digital asset. And so we need to make it easier for the big institutions to come in and buy this asset, except for the fact that it's not an asset. It's nothing. But, you know, they think, well, institutions will buy it the way they buy stocks or the way they buy bonds, except it's not a stock. It doesn't pay a dividend. There's no corporation. There's no earnings. It's not a bond. It's not an obligation to pay anything. It doesn't have a, a coupon, right? There's no interest. Now, of course, people will say, well, but, you know, it's like gold, right? It's digital gold. So institutions will buy uh, Bitcoin as an asset the same way they buy gold. Well, the problem is they're not buying gold. I mean, hardly anybody's buying gold these days. Most of the institutions have zero allocations to gold. Uh, the hedge funds are not buying gold. So if no one's buying gold, why on earth would they want digital gold? I mean, if they don't want the real thing, why would they want this cheap digital substitute? I mean, maybe that's lost on people that you don't even have demand for real gold, yet they anticipate this massive demand for Bitcoin. Now, one of the reasons that people might think that, well, the people will want Bitcoin is because it's going up and gold is going sideways, except it's not going up anymore. It went up and now it's coming down. And so why would institutions want to sign up to be part of a bubble as it's already deflating? In fact, you know, today, uh, the cryptos, I think the market cap hit another new low. It got below $190 billion. I mean, not a new low from the beginning, but a new low since the peak. In fact, Bitcoin dominance now is up to 57%. That is the highest I've seen it. Bitcoin itself hasn't made new lows. I think it's still trading at around 6250 6300 as I'm recording. But look at the Ether tokens. I mean, those things cracked 180. They were up almost at 1400 in January. You got about an 85% decline in the second largest cryptocurrency uh, by market cap. So I don't know why institutions would want to be rushing into a bubble that's in the process of deflating. I mean, yes, last year, late last year, when everybody was crazy and that the prices kept going up, there was a lot of so-called interest or potential interest, uh, but that interest is dried up. And so people are, are, are pinning their hopes on these institutions coming in, but it isn't happening. But it shows you that you're not getting enough new demand from individuals, 
right, which was the original promise, it's a currency, not just a digital asset, and that people are going to use it as a currency, and that, in fact, is not happening. But, of course, you have to convince people to get in, which is, you know, what Lefty is doing. He's telling Ernie, hey, I got something that you need, you know, and, and Ernie's like, well, what? What is it, you know? And then after he explains it to him, one of the most interesting parts of it is that the Bitcoin is inside this bottle, and so when Ernie is willing to pay him the five cents, he says, okay, just, you know, let me have the bottle. And Lefty has to remind Ernie that he's not selling the bottle, that he's just selling the air that is inside the bottle. And what that reminded me of is blockchain and Bitcoin, because when people are talking about how great uh, Bitcoin is, they're always talking about the blockchain and how it's so revolutionary and the blockchain is great, except that when you're buying Bitcoin, you don't get the blockchain. Right? You just get a token that uses the blockchain. The real value is in the blockchain itself. Now, of course, the problem is nobody owns the blockchain because it's not like copyrighted. It's not like a software program where somebody owns it and you have to pay a licensing agreement. I mean, anybody can use uh, the blockchain if they want to. So it's not like a proprietary thing that you can even own. But if you have a business and you want to utilize the blockchain in some way uh, to make your business more efficient and more profitable, then that's fine. But a lot of the so-called benefits of cryptocurrency are the benefits of blockchain. But the benefits of blockchain has nothing to do with Bitcoin. And so when Lefty is saying, hey, I'm not selling the bottle, it's I'm not selling you blockchain. I'm just selling you the Bitcoin, right? The bottle in this cartoon is the only thing that's tangible. It's the only thing that has actual utility. You can use a bottle. A bottle has value. I can fill a bottle up with stuff. Right. And then I can pour it out, you know, later on. I, you know, so it's a storage container. It has actual value and utility in the real world. The air inside has got no value. So Ernie is not even getting the bottle. He's paying his five cents and all he's getting is the nothing that's inside the bottle. That's what you're getting when you're buying Bitcoin. You're getting the nothing. You're not getting the value of the blockchain technology you're getting the nothing that is Bitcoin. And then the other thing that I really like about it is, you know, at the end, because Ernie uh, loses his Bitcoin very easily, which happens all the time, right? Bitcoin gets hacked, you know, all of a sudden people have lost uh, what they thought they had. But I really like the fact that then he's crying about it. At the end of the video, you see Ernie crying over his spilled Bitcoin. And, you know, I think this is basically what's going to happen to everybody who is invested in Bitcoin. They're all going to cry. I mean, maybe they won't literally cry, but figuratively, they're going to be crying over their lost profits or crying over the profits that they never got to realize because a lot of the, the Bitcoin fortunes are just going to evaporate. I mean, a lot of it is not real money. I mean, people invested a small amount of money and now they have a huge amount on paper, but you still have a lot of people, you know, young guys that got into crypto that have barely sold, you know, the hodlers still living in their parents' basement. Uh, they haven't actually spent the money yet, but they've fantasized about spending it. I mean, a lot of people think they have a lot of money. In fact, they think they're going to have even more. A lot of the guys that have moved here to Puerto Rico uh, in order to benefit from the zero capital gains tax, they're trying to benefit from capital gains that they expect to realize in the future. They haven't realized them yet, but they're already here in Puerto Rico anticipating realizing these enormous gains, not just the gains that 
they you know that they have on paper from before they got here, but the even bigger gains that they expect uh, to be you know coming in in the in the years ahead. But I think when everything comes crashing down, there's going to be a lot of very disappointed people. A lot of people's dreams are going to be shattered, and a lot of people are going to be crying, just like Ernie was crying. Uh, you know, except here his whole experience is condensed into a three minute deal. It's not happening over years. But I think. Anybody, if you're into Bitcoin, you should just watch this and take a hard look at yourself. If, if you stayed out of it, I think it really sums it up. You know, and one point that I wanted to make to kind of tie this in with what I talked about earlier in the podcast with savings. And this is an important aspect of money. And this is, you know, where Bitcoin fails and why it can't succeed at the very thing that it is marketed to do. And that is be an alternative form of money. Money is not just a medium of exchange and a unit of account. It is a store of value. And the reason it needs to be a store of value is not only so you can save it, right, and use it later, but so you can loan it out to somebody else, right? Loaning is an important part of the monetary system. Uh, Somebody can borrow and repay you and you can earn interest or charge interest. And so you need something that can retain its value uh, and you know be a, a medium or a source of a, a deferred payment or you can enter into contracts where you're going to get paid over time uh, and you know that the value of what you're getting paid is, is 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 not going to change it's going to stay and and so the concept of savings basically means that you're not consuming something right if you're saving something then you're not using it up right? That's the whole point of saving is you are holding on to something for future use rather than for current use. And when money is a commodity, right, and you're saving it, you're not consuming it, that means somebody else is going to be able to consume it in the future. The beauty about gold and why gold uh, has been such uh, so successful as money is because unlike other commodities, you can actually use and save gold simultaneously. See, most commodities, you can't do that. The minute you use it, it's gone, right? Let's say wheat, right? Can you store wheat? Yes, you can store your wheat, right? You can have a silo and you can store up wheat. So you can save your wheat for future consumption. Although you can't save it as long as gold because there's some type of shelf life. I mean, the wheat's not going to be good for hundreds of years. I mean, it's going to be good for a number of years. I mean, I'm not a farmer. I'm not sure exactly how long you could store it and then still eat it and have and have it, you know, be just as good. Um, and obviously, clearly, you could freeze it, and that would probably extend the lifetime. But of course, now that's going to cost you a lot of money to keep stuff frozen. But the point is that whenever you ultimately use the wheat, it's gone. Once it's consumed, it's gone. Right? That's true with lots of commodities. I mean, what about oil? Right? You can save oil. You can have oil in a big container. You could save it. I mean, lots of you know countries have their strategic reserves, and oil will keep for a long time. Again, I don't know if it'll keep indefinitely, uh, but you can certainly keep it there. But it's it's not cheap to store a bunch of oil. But once you use that oil, it's gone, right? I mean, you bur- you put in your car, you drive, you know, turn into gasoline, the oil's gone. Gold is unique in that no matter how many times you use it, you don't lose it. So you can save your gold and use your gold at the same time because I can take my gold and I can turn it into a ring, right? And I can wear it uh, on my finger. But then if I need the money, I can still take that gold, melt it back down and put it right back into a coin. I mean, even the gold that is a filling in somebody's teeth, right? Even if somebody uses gold to fill their teeth, you can still, you know, take the tooth out, 
get the gold back out of the tooth, and there it is. You can take that gold and make a coin out of it. Obviously, probably not enough in one tooth, but you get a bunch of teeth out of people who had gold fillings, and you can make yourself a brand new uh, maple leaf, right? Gold doesn't get used up no matter what you do with it. You could take gold out of any cell phone or computer electronics. If you could get the original gold back, you can put it back into the same form that it started with. You don't do that with any other metal. Right, I've, you talked about, you know, you find these ships that sunk, you know, hundreds of years ago. The only thing that's still there is the gold. Everything else of value rotted, decayed. I mean, the elements destroyed it. The gold is as good as the day the ship sunk, right? So that is a property that gold has that other commodities don't have in that you can save it and you can use it at the same time. Right? So it's, it's, it's always going to be there. Now, I know the people that like Bitcoin are like, well, the Bitcoin is always there. Yeah, it's always there, just like the air in Ernie's bottle is always there. But what good is it? There's air everywhere. The bottle of air is no more valuable than the air that's outside the bottle. Right? Bitcoins are everywhere. And if it's not a Bitcoin, it's some other digital currency that's the same. It doesn't have to have the same name. Just like the air in that bottle is not exactly the same as all the other air on the planet Earth, but it doesn't matter because air is air. Cryptocurrencies are cryptocurrencies. It doesn't do you any good if yours are called Bitcoin, if there's 2,000 other ones that have the identical properties that have a different name. It, it, it is not gold. It is not digital gold in any way because it doesn't deliver the unique monetary elements that gold has. In addition to being uh, able to be used as a, as a medium of exchange right, and a unit of account, it has these unique properties of being able to save it indefinitely and be able to use it and then reclaim it back into your savings pool. That can't be done uh, with, with any of these cryptocurrencies because in the meantime, you can't use it for anything. Yes, you can have, you can have uh, Bitcoin saved up, but when it comes time to do something with it, what can you do? Right? When you save your wheat, when you eventually consume it, you get food. When you save your oil, when you eventually use it, you could drive your car. What do you get when you save your Bitcoin? You know, what consumption are you deferring into the future? Nothing, because you can't do anything with it now and you can't do anything with it later. But with real money, with gold, I could use it now and I could use it later, uh, which makes it the ideal commodity with which to function as money. And even though Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies can replicate some of the properties that makes gold so good as money, right, better than other commodities, it can't replicate the single most important quality. And again, that is the intrinsic value of the metal itself, of gold as a commodity that is unique in the properties that it delivers to the owner. Thank you.